The pizzas are not refundable. People are going to be writing about us for the rest of our lives probably, and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on, or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit. There's a lot of books about the Beatles, a lot of theories, and I try not to read them. And whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong. Everywhere you go, trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you. Beatles is Beatles, are Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what people say. You can't live all your life by what they want. Another Kind of Mind. A different kind of Beatles podcast by Another Kind of Mind. Welcome to episode four of Pizza and Fairy Tales, our series on Lennon and McCartney in the 1970s. So we've reached the part of the series where we have to discuss the elephant in the room. How can these two people have such longing to be together, but at the same time be so hesitant? And how is it that the whole world is begging them, bribing them to reunite, and yet it still feels like they have so much stacked against them? Virtually every single person on the planet would be delighted if they collaborated again. So whatever odds are stacked against them must be coming from inside the relationship. This brings us to Pizza and Fairy Tales. Sometimes it's like the whole study of their relationship is sort of predicated on this invisible thing that happened between them that we we can't name. We don't know what it was, but it's looming over them. And it ruined everything. Irreparably, at least from John's perspective. Yeah. Y yes. Whatever it was, he can't get past it. Yeah. So the following quote is from 1997, in many years from now. Paul doesn't explicitly state what year he's referring to here. But I always took it to be post-76 um, in the house husband years. Doyle dates it very specifically as April of 1977. Um, <laughs> I don't know exactly why. I think it's educated guesswork based on Paul and Linda being in New York City at that time. Fair enough. And, and maybe that is also the infamous dinner where John, John was, you know, upset that Paul and Linda were so smug being happy together. Oh, right. That we talked about before. Paul says, I would ring John when I went to New York and he'd say, yeah, what the fuck do you want? 
I just thought we might meet. Yeah, what the fuck do you want? I used to actually have some very frightening phone calls. Thank God they're not in my life anymore. I went through a period where I was so nervous to ring him and so insecure in myself that I felt like I was in the wrong. It was very acrimonious and bitter. I remember one time John said, you're all pizza and fairy tales, man. Phew. Yeah. Let's talk about that word frightening. Right? Very frightening phone calls. And thank God they're not in my life anymore. Like That, well, that is strong language from Paul to say that John frightened him over the phone. I think him saying, thank God they're not in my life anymore is really significant because we know that he obviously misses him. And I'm sure Paul would love to have John ring him up. <laughs> yeah. So for him to say, thank God they're not in my life anymore, it's subtle, but it says a lot about how stressful it- those those conversations were it does and how hard being in a relationship with john was yes yeah i mean to the point where it made paul nervous and insecure in himself that i felt like i was in the wrong like just just for existing yeah or for calling for bothering him that's the thing it's like what exactly was frightening was it just john's anger was it specific things that john was saying he says it was very acrimonious and bitter. Yeah. What the fuck do you want? Yeah. Like, that is so aggressive. It is. And suspicious yeah. and suspicious. Yes. Paranoid. And then the phrase itself, you're all pizza and fairy tales, man. To which Paul responds. And I thought that was a great album title. And I said, well, if that's what I am, I'm not wholly against that description of me. Mm-hmm. Very Paul. I, I, like, so I, Paul. I like that he owns it instantly. Right. He's like, oh, you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that's my brand. It is kind of charming. <laughs> He's like, I know. I know what I'm about. Right. <laughs> Don't think well... you're telling me about myself, Lennon. <laughs> You'd think that people would have had enough of pizza and fairy tales. <laughs> what do we think that means? I think that means that Paul wants to metaphorically show up with a pizza and make it all better. <laughs> right? Let me uh-huh. roll it. We'll throw the wine. As Paul once put it, let's get drunk and make up. That's certainly the kindest way to interpret it. Uh, <laughs> A harsher, maybe more John-like read might be that Paul has his head buried in the sand. Maybe on on purpose, too. Like, I could see John thinking that Paul is just stubbornly clinging to this fantasy, myth, whatever you want to call it. Kind of like what John was talking about in the 4442 meeting about the Lennon-McCartney myth. Mm. Fairy tale is even a little more insulting than myth um, because it's, like, childish. I'm going to bring this pizza smooth everything over and and create this fairy tale that things are okay yeah and for paul it might be like you know what i've become extremely risk averse toward you specifically in the past few years so you know what it's gonna take a few pizzas yeah i need to have x number of pizza parties with you where you don't start screaming at me and call me a talentless hack you know, or I need to, I need to be able to turn up at your house 
X number of times without you telling the press that you told me to go away before we can have whatever heart to heart it is that you want. God, right. And that's like, that is not <laughs> unreasonable. <laughs> before you expect me to trust you and like open up. Exactly. Yeah. But to John, it would same old, same old. It would feel like Paul was just retreating again. But for Paul, he might feel like, you know, I've given you what you need. I've done a little um, courting. I've yeah. chased you a little bit. I've made the phone calls. What you need to do for me is kind of sit outside of my little clamshell and entice me out gently. Yeah. And prove to me again that you're not going to go off the deep end and stick a fork in my eye. Like, it's just. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Make me feel safe. Yeah. Yes. If John wants Paul to just swan dive right into a deep, prolonged heart to heart about <laughs> the breakup, all the bloody, gory details of why things fell apart between them, then that uh, that's a crazy expectation to have of Paul. <laughs> yeah, Like true. he needs to be drunk just to say, I love you. Even John in 1980, which I think is revealing, probably accidentally. But he says, I haven't really talked to him in 10 years because we haven't spent time together, which to me sounds like John is saying we need quality time alone yeah, to heal whatever it is. So even though on one hand, John's like a pizza isn't going to cut it, McCartney, he also (laughs) seems to understand that there's no way to fix things between them without that alone time. And it seems like John feels like Paul isn't taking whatever it is seriously enough. Well, I mean, this doesn't really tell us any specifics, but I think it's fair to point out that John might have put this exact dynamic in a perfect nutshell with the lyrics in I'm So Tired. Yeah. Where he says... You'd say I'm putting you on, but it's no joke. It's doing me harm. That was, I was right in Maharishi's camp, right? And I, I want to die, you know. I'm so tired. And yeah, blues where they were pretty sort of realistic. You know, they were about me. And He's expressing absolute agony of suspense. He can't sleep. He feels he's going insane over needing something unspecified from whoever the addressee of the song is i'd give you everything i've got for a little peace of mind meanwhile the addressee seems to be having a really hard time (laughs) uh understanding the problem or at least taking it as seriously as john needs him to and the other person is either treating like a joke or truly does not understand I'm putting you on is, is kind of like dismissing what you're saying. Well, or maybe it's a, you're going to pull that football away. You're putting me on. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, like I'm putting you on could be a distrust on the other person. Yeah. yeah, which would also be extremely painful to John. Like it's yeah, all that, bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah, whatever that, that issue person is. is saying to John, it's a big ouch. And the timing of I'm so tired would seem to fit with Jeff Emmerich's observation that post India something had really had, had changed between John and Paul specifically. He says that his first meeting in the studio with the Beatles after they got back from India, he says, 
I sensed at that moment that something fundamental in them had changed. The rage that was bubbling inside John was the most obvious sign that something was seriously wrong. There was new tension between John and Paul. And we've covered this in the breakup series and, and elsewhere. Like traditionally that just gets blamed on Yoko's presence. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, there were problems before Yoko was, was brought into the situation. So. Right. And, yeah. you know, why is John suicidal in Rishikesh? Yes. When he comes back, why does Pete Shotton say he was worse than he's literally ever seen him in his whole life? Yes. Mm-hmm. why is he having a nervous breakdown at Derek Taylor's house, you know, on LSD trips and going through like through his entire life right. and like yeah. needing to be reassured of all his accomplishments and like, yeah, he's really in a no. very, very yeah. bad state. Yoko didn't trigger this crisis in John. Like she was the thing he desperately grasped onto in order to address the crisis. He used he used that metaphor himself that she was the life raft. Absolutely. So. Yep. And I was slowly putting myself together after Maharishi and that, bit by bit over a two-year period. And then I destroyed my ego, you know, and uh, I didn't believe I could do anything, you know. And uh, I let Paul do what he wanted and say of them all, just do what they wanted. And I just was nothing. I was shit, you know. And uh, and then Derek tripped me out at his house after he got back from. LA. He said, it's all, you know, it's all, and he sort of said, you're all right. And he pointed out which songs I'd written. And, you know, he said, you, and you wrote this and you said this and you are intelligent. Don't be frightened, you know. And then next week I went down with Yoko and we tripped out again and, and she filled me completely to realize that I was me and it's all right, you know. And uh, that was it. Yeah. You know, there there is something in Fred Seaman's book so a lot of stuff about Paul, you know, half the time John would refer to him sort of lovingly and whatever. And then the rest of the time he'd complain. But there is uh, one quote in the book where he basically says about Paul, you know, I needed him a lot. And then it got to the point where I had to cut the cord or something like that. Basically, I had to stand on my own. I was too dependent on him. And then when I did that, he turned on me. And he said he was absolutely vicious to me and Yoko. And that's it. That's all he says. He doesn't say anything specific, um, which you would certainly think he would. Like, why would he hold back now? Um, right. But sometimes I'm like, is there something we don't know? Sure. But I mean, other than the postcard story from Francie Schwartz, which assuming it's even true is just stupid. For anyone who doesn't know, Schwartz was an aspiring writer who slept with Paul for about three months in 1968. And she subsequently wrote a penthouse article about it and, and later a book. Anyway, she claims that when John and Yoko were crashing at Paul's house in uh, summer of 68, Paul wrote John a nasty note disguised as fan mail as a sort of not funny passive aggressive joke that included a slur for a Japanese person, which assuming it's true would certainly not be okay I'm not sure how it stacks up against the awful things John has said about Linda, her dad, <laughs> or Jews and <in> mass, <laughs> or the or the slurs that John has used against Asian people, or you know against Yoko, which are amazing. Right, I, I will never repeat them. But um, you know, again, I'm not saying that any of that makes Paul's use of an inappropriate word okay it's just it makes it harder for me to believe that John was so traumatized by that yeah 
when he used all kinds of inappropriate words himself with absolute impunity. So um, right. it's kind of a hard case to make. Well, what's weird to me is that even Francie, the way that she tells the story that Paul said, oh, I did that for a lark could mean that he put it on the mantelpiece as well, a, that, that someone else wrote it. That's how I take it. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. Is she, she does. She never says she saw him wrote it. Exactly. exactly. She says that he puts yes. it on the mantle and then he goes, oh, I wrote that. <laughs> ha ha ha. Like, exactly. Which is a passive aggressive way to say you are a fucking cunt. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. 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 But it doesn't mean or, that he literally wrote it. Either he wrote it and pretended it was a anonymous fan mail or it was anonymous <laughs> fan mail and he was co-signing the sentiment. And he co-opted it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then my bigger problem with that nasty note is that it's only significant according to Francie. No one else even <laughs> corroborates it, let alone claims that it was a big deal to any of them. But that incident is her entire claim to fame. So of course she's going to play it up like it was a huge moment. And considering there are fans who claim to have witnessed John almost punching a pregnant Linda, uh, you know, we're, we're weighing a, a nasty note against that, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Not that we're sure that necessarily happened. It's just there's as much evidence for that as for the nasty postcard from Paul. Yeah. Well, there were eyewitnesses yeah. to John almost hitting Linda. So, you know. Yeah. Anyway, um, in, in John Green's book, Yoko's, Yoko tells him, I like Paul. I don't have any problem with Paul. John is the one who has the problem with Paul. Yeah. So I'm like, well, whatever it was, Yoko's not pressed about it. She's only she's pressed about how much attention Paul gets from John. But other than that, she doesn't <laughs> seem to think that Paul is a terrible person. Right. Yes. So that's kind of confusing. And then also in John Green's book, he John tells John Green, the astrologer, that the unforgivable thing Paul did was announce the breakup to sell a record. He's very clear in this alleged conversation yeah. that he had that that was <laughs> Paul's big crime. Right, which is sort of odd because when he talks about it in Lennon Remembers, where he says, like, it's what I should have done. Use it to yeah, sell right, album. exactly. Like, yeah. he, he doesn't he doesn't sound particularly angry just kind of rueful he outsmarted uh, me that dick i was a fool not to do it you know not to do what paul did which is use it to sell a record you were really angry with paul no i wasn't angry well when he came out with his i'm leaving well i wasn't angry i was just shit you know i mean he, he's a good pr man paul i mean he, he's about the best in the world probably you know? he really does a job yeah so so john says contradictory things all the time so anyways I, I don't feel like we need to relitigate the breakup here i just suffice it to say i can i can see why john would be upset that paul grabbed a headline in april 70 about mm -hmm. leaving the band but i also would expect him to get over it once he cooled <laughs> off right right which, which it seems he did right and also if he really feels like he is the one who left after he's told the world it was really me who left Paul and like everyone <laughs> for the rest of time in literally every single recorded article yeah. and book on the Beatles thinks right. that John left Paul 
and literally Paul backs him up and says, yeah, John <laughs> left first. He asked for a divorce. Like Paul says that immediately and has right, stuck right. with that for the rest of his life. Surely John would not hold on to that anger anymore. Like, well, you wouldn't think so. What, what is there to stay mad about? <laughs> right. Like you upstaged me for five seconds. Like who for cares? Five seconds. Right, right. It is definitely possible that in more emotional moments, the fact that Paul announced the breakup might have pained John if we are right that John felt disappointed and hurt that Paul didn't fight for him. Sure. In some moments, he might have felt that, yes, actually, Paul was the one who dumped him. And so that McCartney album press release might be a very painful memory for him at times. Sure. But I mean, the traditional narrative doesn't even acknowledge any of those things. (laughs) Well, that's true. Like that John felt that Paul was supposed to fight for him or that you know, he was hurt by Paul leaving. So you can't have one without the other. Well, absolutely. So I think both of those things, like the press release and also, you know, Paul was mean to me and Yoko, but not even as mean as George Harrison, by the way. (laughs) Like, I think both of those things are red herrings. Yeah, agree. Even if John had moments of being very hurt by any or all of those incidents, That was obviously not how he felt about them most of the time. So it absolutely does not explain the entirety of his behavior in the 1970s. It's just not good enough. And John does have a a history that we've demonstrated of taking things wrong or taking things to the extreme or going back and forth or or interpreting things through his own insecurities. Like we we established all of that. So it's not unreasonable to think that whatever it is he's upset about has to do with his own hurt feelings and his own insecurities and, you know, maybe interpretation of Paul's behavior that what, you know what I mean? Because I don't know what else it is. And it seems like Paul desperately wants to move past whatever it is. And John can't. Can't. Seems like John wants to a lot of the time. Yeah. I mean, he tries to. Okay. So Paul has hurt John tremendously, but John is inconsistent and evasive about how exactly Paul hurt him uh, in public, but also even in private to various people, you know, staff members, confidants, whatever. Which would suggest that either John doesn't know why he's hurt or more realistically that it's something he doesn't want to talk about. However, there appears to have been some instigating event in or around spring of 1968. And within a year, John and Paul have both chosen and married the women they would stay with until death. And when John and Paul break up for good a year later, both of them act like the universe is imploding. Exactly. The post-breakup period, otherwise known as the 70s, (laughs) has to be examined in relation to what it tells us about the relationship before the breakup. Because watching a couple break up will always give you new and often surprising information about the relationship that you did not know before. So this is what we're looking at here. The post-breakup pattern from John to Paul seems to be John lashes out and then is super regretful and apologetic and then loving and romantic and then angry and bitter again. Yeah. And that this is just sort of like 
the cycle. So we thought what we should do here is run through a few of the most plausible scenarios based on what we know about things that happened and the things they say about each other. And for now, we're going to set aside the band related things. Yes, there are professional issues, tiffs, disputes, and we're not discounting those. They aren't unimportant, but right now we need to focus on their personal relationship as friends. The love between them. So we're focusing on feelings and emotions. Right. So let's take a look at what John complained about. Because John is the wounded party and frames himself as the victim of Paul's hurtful behavior, and because John, in his own words, leapt from the boat called Paul to the boat called Yoko in May of 1968. And because we've already spent a lot of time dissecting and being critical of John's behavior, we're going to focus on John's criticisms of Paul to see what that reveals about the initial break in 1968. Paul, according to John, was insensitive. Yep. We have John's uh, Playboy quote from 1980, calling Paul insensitive. Paul was emotionally unavailable. We have a quote from Alan Klein from 1971, where he's recounting a conversation he had with John, where John said every time he opened up to Paul, Paul heard him. And Paul was avoidant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, uh, a lot of people say this. Uh, several several people Absolutely. have said this about Paul. If he doesn't want to hear it, he doesn't hear it. Yeah. He doesn't want to know, as they say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. From all that, I think we can safely deduce that Paul hurt John's feelings. And also that after the breakup, John has the nagging recurring belief or fear that he and Paul were never close. He says this to Alan Klein in 1971, and he says it to John Green, the tarot card guy also. Whereas Paul's point of view is pretty much, I've never been closer to another person in my life. Right. At least once he got past some sort of initial crisis of faith that he seemed to have in the early 80s about their love right after John's traumatic death. Um, But since then, he's been very consistent. And all the people around John and Paul corroborate their closeness, by the way. Literally everybody. Yeah. But somehow that closeness was not nearly enough for John. And it continues to bother him in his low moments and create bitterness towards Paul for the rest of time. So let's just go through a few hypothetical situations. Knowing what we know these two people were very, very, very close, loved each other a great deal, were extremely distressed and traumatized by their own breakup, and that they both have said, you know, they never stopped loving each other. Like famously, the day John was killed, he said, you know, I love Paul, I would do anything for him. And then he added, and Paul would do anything for me. Considering all that, let's go through a couple hypothetical situations that would sort of meet all that criteria. <laughs> We're going to go through like four, four situations, let's say. Scenario one, Paul is MIA. 
meaning John was battling his inner demons and Paul just wasn't there for him enough. Right. So John is in an existing state of emotional distress that is escalating in late 67 or early 68. And that Paul, his best friend, just wasn't supportive. Right. He was just MIA in John's time of need. John resented this and can't forgive him. And so some ideas of what kind of distress this might have been. John had any number of things to be distressed about uh, and things that might have all been coming to a head in his mid-20s. I think that's a a time in life when Mm -hmm. for a lot of people, their issues start coming home to roost in a major way. Uh, plus there's all the drugs, there's uh, his relationship with Cynthia, there's the pressures of fame, his shrinking role within the Beatles, or at least his perceived shrinking role in comparisons to Paul's growing role. At this point, Paul's contributions are very generally getting more accolades from the outside world. There's possibly some, just some feelings of inferiority. Yep. Some insecurity. Insecurity is a better word than inferiority. That he expressed. Um, That he expressed, yeah. And that everyone around them observed. Yeah. There might be a little bit of imposter syndrome. Yeah, sure. Yeah, he might be feeling that his inspiration is fading and that might have been causing him to spin out. And then to your point of Paul being MIA, there's the possibility that in John's time of need, he looked up and Paul wasn't there, which would be certainly be bad. Um, there's also the possibility that John looked up, met Paul's eyes. Paul knew that John was in pain and he decided to leave anyway. Meaning Paul is cognizant that there's a problem and that yes. he's needed and that he, that he fails for, to meet that need yeah, for, for, what, for whatever for, reason. For what reason, either he can't deal or he just decides to be selfish or Or whatever let john deal with it on his own okay if that's the case i think that most people would side with john in that case because most people agree that it is your best friend's role to be supportive of you of course in in a time of need emotionally supportive to the best of their ability Right. Absolutely. And if and they, they weren't, you would definitely start questioning, mm, is this person really my best friend, my friend then? Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we both agree with that assessment. Okay. Rather than placing the blame on John for being too needy and expecting too much, or placing the blame on Paul for being a shitty friend or selfish or whatever, maybe the question we should be asking is like, how much was Paul capable of giving? Yes. Because we know enough, I think, about John and Paul's marriages Mm -hmm. in 1969. I think it's safe to say both of their wives, Linda and Yoko, both do a lot of emotional labor for these men. <laughs> yeah. Without passing a judgment on either of them. Okay. Yeah. Let's just talk about how big is like the deficit 
in Paul in terms of like what he is capable of giving to a friend. In terms of him doing emotional labor for them? Yes. Like at this point in time, he's pretty young. You know, he takes a lot of flack for being self-centered and whatever. Mm -hmm. And and part of that might just be like a a shortcoming and a flaw on his part. Right. Um, But also he's a spoiled rock star. Like he's a Beatle. Right. All of them are incredibly spoiled. Yes. Entitled. Egotistical. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) We call them stars for a reason. So there's that. But in addition to that, it is sort of a different era where it's certainly not atypical for women to be doing a lot of the emotional labor in relationships with men. Yeah. And then like Paul's upbringing, I think we can all agree that like losing his mother at 14, having that horribly traumatic incident, having like no healthy way to process it and having no way to grieve and nobody to hold him and no one to cry to. Yeah. How emotionally available is that person going to be? <laughs> it is absolutely going to take a toll for sure. I could even see a situation. Oh, Paul, I could see a situation of Paul seeing John was going through something and beyond not really having the tools to help him, he might have been afraid of doing more harm than good. Mm, Yeah. He might've considered that his best option. Yeah. He might've known that he wasn't the greatest person to come crying to either. And I think it's probably true that he's not in some ways. I think he models his behavior on the way he himself was raised, but I think he also simultaneously, uh, has some buried resentment about being raised that way. Mm -hmm. I catch that vibe from him, uh, at least when he was a young man. So, so for example, like on the surface, he might just be saying out loud, cheer up person who's come to me with your problems. It'll all be okay. Look on the sunny side, you know, whatever, but there's definitely also an undercurrent of, well, nobody helped me when I had problems. So deal with it. Yeah, for sure. Well, you can see that in his letter to Brian too, where he is basically like, oh yeah, your problems are all in your head. You know, like keep your pecker up, dude. So I think there's definitely a part of Paul that is so fiercely independent that it frustrates him when other people aren't. He kind of shoots himself in the foot there because it's one thing to be independent. It's one. It's another thing to be like stubbornly proud of your independence when it's actually Mm -hmm. detrimental to you. Like when (laughs) you would actually greatly benefit benefit from from having like a mentor or like Mm -hmm. a professional or like delegating some stuff. A a therapist. (laughs) Yeah. Or just opening up more to your own damn best friends. Yeah. Who want you to do that. Well, so they say, you know. Yeah. There's definitely a dynamic, I think, in situations like that, where when the person who is supposed to be sort of the strong, detached one, when they do change the rules and become vulnerable, sometimes the other people in the group don't always respond great to that, even though they would say that they wanted it and would believe that they wanted it. When it actually happens, sometimes it doesn't shake out the way you might think sometimes they don't welcome that with open arms okay so you have a situation where john is you know a little more needy than average or whatever right 
you have Paul on the other hand who is less forthcoming and less emotionally available than average yeah plus is also super needy (laughs) so yeah and doesn't like that part of himself well and that that's another thing like do you ever do the thing where if you see someone like fall down or something or you see someone's about to you know lose their shit a little bit and start crying where you think if I were in that situation I would want people to ignore it and not make a thing of it because it would be embarrassing and so that's what you do for them yes so I could kind of see that being Paul's I'm gonna John's really upset he doesn't want me to draw attention to the fact that he's upset that would just make him more upset yeah so I'm gonna be cheerful and avert my eyes you know like maybe that's what my dad did and that's how my dad showed me love you know exactly and that's what I would want him to do if this is where I was going Uh, yeah exactly I would rather not talk about it I'd rather somebody make a joke or tell me that somebody else has it worse yes because that seems like what Jim would do he'd be like did you know (laughs) that people are starving so that's what I'm gonna do too you're welcome John yeah, and John's like, that yeah. is not it. <laughs> <laughs> we can all fall into this thinking where we just assume that if John is X, Paul has to be Y, and vice versa. Like opposite. That if you rub John and Paul together hard enough, you'll come up with a normal person. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sometimes they have overlapping issues. Very much so. Yeah, and well, there that's was- why they were they were able to be so close. Well, I think that's true, actually. I think that's a that's a good observation. You know, they both had this loss that they both understood, but it's not as if they sat around talking about it. No, no, not at all. No. Like, um, oh, we helped each other get through it because we confided in each other and talked about our moms endlessly and were each other's therapists. I, I feel more like they just hurt together. And knew it, but didn't necessarily talk about it. That really bonds you to people. If you hurt together with somebody, yeah. that's really intimate. Yeah, and understands the quality of that pain. I think that's how yeah. John and Yoko bonded too. Yeah, and, and that might have made it extra painful for John when he was, again, hurting. But this mm, time, yeah. knew that Paul was definitely not, or thought that Paul was definitely not. Yeah, that's true. Yes, in fact, that's exactly what he said. I was going through hell and I knew Paul wasn't. He he said that to Barry Miles on September 23rd, 1969, a couple of days after the divorce meeting. We're always like, why does he sound so resentful when he said that? Like, yeah, it might've just been in contrast to what he was used to. Not that he was necessarily blaming it on Paul, but just that it was really painful for it to be different this time when before we'd been in it together to not be empathetic to Paul in that situation is crazy like yeah so like it's fine that John takes his issues out on uh, out on other people like deliberately and cruelly but it's not okay that Paul has issues that you know cause him to be insensitive to people and hurt them sometimes yeah or, on or accident th- I've always found it really interesting and, and a little uh, puzzling about how you know, when Paul broke up with Jane and he went to Alistair Taylor's yeah. house like every night for two weeks or something and like just cried on Alistair's yeah. shoulder. And Alistair is like, Paul was never ashamed about crying, which made me rethink a lot of things. I was like, that's really? That's weird. 
Alistair also says that he knew that Paul would not have felt comfortable doing that with the other Beatles, which I kind of took to mean John. Well, Alistair specifically says Paul would have hated John to think that he was upset about a woman, even if Mm. she was Jane Asher. Okay. Yeah. So you could take that to mean, you know, John's attitude was bitches ain't shit. And so he would have ridiculed Paul for crying over some stupid bird. Um, Good use of English (laughs) phrases there. (laughs) But of course, there may be a more complicated reason that John would be unable to listen to Paul cry over a woman, um, as we'll discuss in a bit. And yes, there likewise may have been a more complicated reason why paul was unable to listen to john cry over whatever was tormenting him in spring of 68 yeah yeah and again if we're positing that paul was not supportive of john in his time of need this anecdote proves i think or at least suggests that john wasn't supportive of paul in his times of need like i don't i don't think john was a great shoulder to go cry on either Right. And it's worth noting that Paul cried to Alistair several times. It wasn't uh, just like one night things came to a head for Paul and he burst into tears. Like this was his coping mechanism for weeks. Yeah. Well, Alistair writes in his book, I thought the world of Paul. He was like the younger brother I'd never had. He was talented, charming, and often very kind. Which, by the way, is a word that people close to Paul often use to describe him. Kind. But um, kindness, as we all know, can be taken for weakness, mm-hmm. uh, as, as a famous songwriter once said. So, um, <laughs> you know, to Alistair's point that the individual Beatles never like to accept weakness. It's not crazy that, that Paul wouldn't have felt comfortable. Exactly. And I think that of all of them, that just probably was incompatible with Paul's role, his traditional role in the Beatles family dynamic. But Alistair makes a point of saying that uh, Paul was never ashamed. Was about never crying. ashamed. Yeah. So I don't necessarily know that it's that That's Paul true. can't cry. I think it's just that he doesn't want to cry in front of his certain people. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm saying is if that's how Paul feels about his own vulnerabilities there might be part of him that thinks that well that's what john would want to then or at least he might tell himself that sometimes was he putting in that real emotional labor of like letting john talk for two hours or what you know whatever right john needed probably not probably not probably not (laughs) (laughs) um if that was the situation though would that really explain no (laughs) right yeah it really wouldn't explain anything john's utter meltdown and lingering pain over the (laughs) next decade even though paul is trying to make up for it (laughs) yeah it doesn't come close to explaining it at all if general hurt and disappointment about paul being an inadequate friend were all it was that would be cause for john to be angry in the moment and want to break up or at least withdraw from the relationship and feel abandoned and sad and all of that Mm -hmm. but but there is a very very strong element of you know what this is all about in john's actions toward paul 
And so that's just one of the reasons why it seems so much more likely that it was a thing, something, an event that happened between them that set John off. John seems to be reacting to an acute trauma here, mm-hmm. not a chronic malaise. Yeah. And if that was the case, it would be reasonable for him to be hurt about that. But then at of some course. point, you, he would think he'd be able to say, hey, man, you know what? Like, I was really in a bad place and I felt like you weren't there for me. Paul would go, well, sorry, I, you know, I didn't know what to do and I'm not really good at that. Mm-hmm. And you would assume that they would then go, all right, like it could be a five minute conversation, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I see where you're coming from. This is where I'm coming from. Okay, good. We've established that we both have good intentions or like neither one of us has bad intentions and we shake or we hug or we do whatever we're comfortable doing. And then we move on like that. Right. Would be that situation between two friends. Yeah, it wouldn't be a mortal wound that John carried around with him the rest of his life. Right. Scenario two, Paul's independence. So from John's perspective, Paul is pulling away from him. And that specifically is the primary source of John's distress. Some reasons that John might feel that way. Paul is living relatively independently away from the other Beatles. He doesn't want to move to the Greek island Beatle commune. Uh, He's getting engaged to Jane and he leaves India early, etc. For one or all of these reasons, John knows that he is now going to get less of Paul's time and attention, and that is painful for him to contemplate and frightening. Yeah, like, again, I kind of think that that's a normal situation uh, between sure. friends, like a, mm-hmm. like a bridesmaids situation. Right. <laughs> right, like in the movie Bridesmaids, right? So, like, I guess I could see a situation where there's like little hurts and jealousies that get expressed and then reacted to and then it then it starts to become some weird ping pong game of like you're acting like a bitch now i'm gonna act like a bitch and it's just snowballs from there <laughs> right oh i'm gonna bring my girlfriend into the studio then oh well i'll bring my fucking girlfriend and oh well then <laughs> in that situation <laughs> using the plot of bridesmaids as a template <laughs> um, <laughs> you know most mature people are going to be at some point they're going to be like listen i'm sorry you just started spending all your time with so and so and you were going to get married and i'm worried that i'm not going to see you anymore and whatever yeah. and then the friend will say oh but uh, come on i love you you'll always be my best friend and then you hug it out and right yeah. well and that's what that's what paul says about yoko he says yeah you know i was i didn't behave great I was jealous because of Yoko, but now I yeah. see like it's okay. That's a good so that, point, actually. Yeah. Paul explains to Ray Conley in April 1970 in his post-breakup interview to the Evening Standard, explaining how he didn't feel comfortable working with John while Yoko was there, and goes on to say that recently. I told John on the phone the other day that at the beginning of last year, I was annoyed with him. I was jealous because of Yoko and afraid about the breakup of a great musical partnership. It's taken me a year to realize that they were in love, just like Linda and me. So that's 
a perfect example of how that scenario plays out. Yeah. Like you, you, you move past it and maybe there's always going to be a bit of disappointment, a little bit of resentment, but it's, again, it's not going to lead to how do you sleep and a decade of, of and pizza also, and fairy tales. Right, exactly. <laughs> and that's from Paul's point of view, like from Paul's point of view, that kind of does seem, you know, what it was like mm-hmm. with the Very Yoko much. situation. He was like, you know what? I Fine. Yeah. I could have been nicer. That's on me. Yeah. Um, I didn't quite understand. I was a little bit in denial. I was jealous. Yeah. Uh, but now, now, also, now it's I, okay. she's been stalking you and that creeped me out and nobody liked her <sighs> yeah. for a really long time. So it seemed a little sketchy to me at first. <laughs> and you turned into a real jerk towards Cynthia, my friend, and became a heroin addict. But yeah. you know what? Perhaps I was judgmental. Who am I to say you can't marry your stalker? That's right. Let's move on. Yeah, exactly. I'll take this one. This one's on me. Okay. Yeah. Moving forward. (laughs) Let's be cool. And John's like, never. A pox upon your house, McCartney. It's war. Yeah. Yeah. That's not the, that's not the story, at least not from John's end. Well, and also (laughs) if it is a situation where um john's like oh i just fell in love with this uh wonderful woman and we're so happy and whatever and then your friend after a period of however many months is like you know what my bad your friend is gonna be like you've been a real (laughs) real dick but i understand it's because you love me and you were hurt and listen i'm still gonna be your friend nothing's gonna change like that's what you say to your best friend it is yeah or even if you think mm, no that was too much i i'm out of this relationship again you don't go to war <laughs> you just disengage you just, ex- that's exactly right yeah. you just go no and you know what we know john understood that that would have been the normal reaction because that's the story he tries to sell afterward i just fell in love with yoko i got fed up with the beatles i was bored paul was annoying i don't even care about him anymore (laughs) right but that is not what he did what he did was go to war and (laughs) actions speak louder than words so again that doesn't quite shake out for me who am i supposed to be Number three, there was a romantic element to the relationship which John wanted to explore further, and Paul did not. Okay. I think it's important to play this one all the way out because this is a likely scenario. Yeah, it is because basically we have people saying that that's what happened that that was a dynamic at play that shouldn't even be controversial anymore at this point yoko said it yeah well and yoko yoko did bring it up in terms of explaining john's behavior well, she did she absolutely did i mean that's her interpretation yeah so she made um, she made it relevant she made the connection yeah well and the fact that she thinks that that is why john's anger was so deep and personal and passionate means Ex- that it wasn't just a little just it wasn't 
it wasn't nothing to John. It wasn't a, I'm bohemian. Bohemians try everything. Paul's there. (laughs) If that were the case, he would not be deeply, deeply angry, mad, and hurt in a way that made Yoko raise her eyebrow at the time and be like, what is this? Exactly. And Yoko wasn't also like, hey, Philip Norman, want some hot goss? You know, (laughs) I feel like throwing a bomb into the Beatles discourse today. Right. Yeah. She wasn't just like being a shitster. (laughs) Or if she was, she was doing it very tactfully. She might have simultaneously (laughs) been shitstirring. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She, she brought it up to explain his two year long epic meltdown. And then, as we mentioned in episode two, we've got Harry Nilsson's point of view that seems to support Yoko's point of view. (laughs) Right. Or corroborate Yoko's point of view. Um, right the sort of consistent element in those tellings and in other things like Derek Taylor's statement that John loved Paul and Paul in his own way loved John too the consistent element in all of these things is the dynamic of John wanting more and Paul not giving it yeah yeah there's a there's an imbalance of some kind right Paul also alludes obliquely to this in statements uh, like his, I couldn't fight Yoko for John. Uh, That's what we talked about in the breakup series is that John, you know, by bringing Yoko in, he's setting up this scenario where if Paul doesn't want him him. to leave, he's going to have to fight for him and he's going to have to fight John's girlfriend. Yeah. Which puts Paul in a, he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. That's for sure. (laughs) In, in 1985, Paul's saying, I, I couldn't do couldn't. that. Yeah. What basis would I have? Right. Would I have had to do that? So here's the quote from Paul. We do have audio of it, but it's dubbed over in German and the quality just isn't good enough. Um, so the interviewer says that it must have been very painful for Paul, quote, not only the Beatles breaking up, but that particular relationship breaking up. And we point that out because this is specifically Paul commenting directly on what broke up Paul and John, not necessarily the whole band. Right. Okay. So this is what Paul says. I think really all it was, really all that happened was that John fell in love with Yoko. And so with such a powerful alliance like that, it was difficult for him to still be seeing me. It was as if I was another girlfriend almost. Our relationship was a strong relationship. And if he was to start a new relationship, he had to put this other one away. And I understood that. I mean, I couldn't stand in the way of someone who'd fallen in love. You can't say, who's this? You can't really do that. If I was a girl, maybe I could go out and... But, you know, I mean, in this case, I just sort of said, right. I mean, I didn't say anything, but I could see that was the way it was going to go and that Yoko would be very sort of powerful for him. So um, we had to all get out of the way. So this quote is vague enough to be sort of a Rorschach test. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not absolutely unusual for Paul quotes, uh, right. but 
um, if you believe the official story that John just serendipitously fell in love with Yoko and immediately lost interest in Paul and the Beatles, you'll hear Paul saying that John left him for Yoko. Right, but I, I think there's another way to look at it too, which is Paul saying he really had no choice. Like he was never in the running, even though he was almost like a girlfriend. Um, at the end of the day, he wasn't. So he stepped aside without putting up a fight so that John could be happy with Yoko. Either way, he's saying their relationship was so strong that it was like a romance and that John could not commit to Yoko until he pushed Paul out of his heart, which is wild. That's crazy. (laughs) As if I was another girlfriend, almost. And it was difficult for him to still be seeing me. And we had a strong relationship. All of those phrases indicate a romantic bond, something deeper than your typical friendship. Yeah. I mean, all encompassing strong relationship is maybe, you know, maybe that one is borderline, but it was difficult for him to still be seeing me is not something that you say about your platonic friend. No, normally it's not (laughs) right. And he's not saying he was too busy or he didn't have time to see me anymore. It was too difficult well that's that's what jumped out at me because paul saying it was difficult for john um doesn't Mm. imply that john was too focused on yoko to care about or pay attention to paul right paul is saying john was too distracted and conflicted about paul to properly focus on yoko yeah so paul's framing it like he was the one like he was the roadblock. He was standing in the way of John and Yoko, not the other way around, not Yoko standing between him and John. Yeah, which which ties back into our first couple episodes talking about how um, Yoko is threatened by Paul. Yeah. Paul's jealousy of Yoko gets talked about a lot, but not vice versa. Yeah. What I right. think it should be, because I think it's really important. I think it's kind of sweet that he says, like, maybe if I was a woman, I mean, like, let's say this is the scenario. Then I think Paul's saying, like, if, if I were into dudes, I would fight for you. I would be into right, you. Yeah. Like, I would want to yeah. be with you. I just. Right. True. This is an unworkable yeah. situation for me. Right. Anyway. Yeah. He wouldn't be spending this much um, time explaining why he couldn't do something if the answer was, well, I didn't want to. You know, he's, he's saying that the reason is that he couldn't, yeah. which by implication, I think means that he, if he could have, he would have, he kind of wanted to, but ultimately didn't think he had the right. But I think it's important that Paul seems to be on many occasions, sincerely trying to express if I could have, I would have. Right. But I couldn't. He says something very similar to Hunter Davies over the phone in 1982. He tells Hunter, off the record, I understood what happened when he first met Yoko. He had to clear the decks of all his old emotions. He went through all his old affairs, confessed them all. Me and Linda did that when we first met. You prove how much you love someone by confessing all that old stuff. John's method was to slag me off. Okay. Um, same idea. 
basically. Although in this version, which is presumably a little more candid, um, mm-hmm. Paul seems to suggest it was a bit performative, or at least it was deliberate on John's part. But, you know, him saying me and Linda did that too, yeah, where they confessed all their old affairs, that also seems to suggest that maybe Paul was up front with Linda about him and John when they got together. Yeah. yeah I mean, that, that's what he's saying. Yeah. John's method was to slag me off also also would suggest i think from paul's point of view at least that he and john are doing essentially the same thing they're both trying to emotionally disengage from the paul john relationship or sort of like accept that it's over Mm -hmm. but that paul's method was to internalize and john's method was to lash out as usual yeah completely consistent with their personalities yeah I understood what happened when he first met Yoko. I wonder if Paul is if he saying he understood it at the time or if he's saying like in retrospect I understand. You know, this is transcribed off of Hunter's of notepad. Course. So Of course, he he could have said I understand. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, if the, if this so. is what he says, if he did say I right. understood what happened when he first met mm-hmm. Yoko, then he's saying I knew at the time. Yeah, but he also says it took me a year to realize they were in love. So I, no, that's true I tend too. to think I tend to think he was pretty confused that, at the time. But that's not really inconsistent because, like I said, this version that he says to Hunter does it's imply, yeah, that it's performative on John's part. Yeah. So mm-hmm. he, I think he's saying like John did that on purpose because he was, you know, deliberately trying to push me out. Listen, I'm saying like once you're once you're in love with somebody or you know you're in love with somebody how in the world are you going to be able to start dating somebody else if that person is still in your life on a daily basis yeah don't know that you can right so paul has a good point he he is a problem even if John made a conscious decision and was like, okay, fine. I got my answer. This isn't going to happen. Yeah. He, we're broken up, I guess. So I'm going to get somebody else. And then he's like, I found somebody else. She's perfect. She's my life now. I'm mm-hmm. going to commit to her. Even if he decided all that, you if you quit heroin, you don't want to go to work with heroin every day. You know. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. So... I've been on either side of the situation, as many of us probably have. I've, I've developed feelings for a friend that were unrequited, and I've had a friend develop unrequited feelings for me. Mm-hmm. And neither one is a perfect analogy for this situation. You know, like... You didn't conquer the world together. And... Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right, yeah. Yeah, I'm not a baby boomer. I'm not a man, you know. <laughs> I no, I was not a beetle. You're not a beetle. <laughs> yeah but i've been there so Mm -hmm. i can picture being the john in this situation or the paul Mm -hmm. in this situation yeah when you were the john in the situation (laughs) yeah Yeah. how did you handle it did you ever say anything explicitly to the person you have feelings for i did as i recall i wrote her a letter i think she started going out with a guy that she was kind of like serious about Mm -hmm. and 
it was upsetting to me, you know? Yeah. She was straight. So it wasn't like I thought it was going to go anywhere. Like I knew it wasn't going right. to go anywhere. And it wasn't like, how about you ditch that guy and date me? Right. Yeah. Like, you, weren't, you weren't making a play. Uh, no, I just kind of withdrew from the situation. It wasn't like I disappeared immediately. Like we still tried to be friends mm-hmm. for a while after that, but it did kind of ruin the friendship. Yeah. A lot of friendships just don't recover from from that situation yeah she didn't want to stop being friends but for me I was like well I just don't want to be in that situation anymore yeah of course yeah and her boyfriend was so nice (laughs) he was yeah the sweetest nicest guy and he was so nice to me too okay so obviously you're (laughs) <laughs> you're not John Lennon you are Phoebe you are <laughs> <laughs> I just want to get, be really clear here <laughs> Phoebe is not John Lennon <laughs> all y'all um so do you think that it makes any sense for John to have been so angry if the situation was like yours I personally wasn't angry and I would not be angry. Like anger in that situation for me seems to come from more of an entitlement. Uh Uh-huh. You know, right. And I never feel entitled to sex or romance from another person (laughs) um, under any circumstances. So a beetle may or may not have a, a different point of view on that. And also not to sound shallow, but I was 18 at the time. So I bounced back yeah. pretty quickly. There had been no romantic relationship between you and your friend before. Right, right, right. And also like we were best buds for like three years or something. Mm-hmm. I dated several guys and I had a girlfriend at some point. So it wasn't like I was secretly pining for her the whole time. You know, like, right. Yeah. Or, or that we were upset when each other, when we were dating anybody, it was just like all yeah. of a sudden, I don't know until, why. Yeah. yeah you had a tipping until, point. Yeah. yeah. And I can't even explain to you why it happened at that time. It just. Right. Hmm. Why there was a turning point. Interesting. Yeah. Like I said, like two or three years in. Well, that might kind of, you know, that, that is very relevant though to the John and Paul situation because something seemed to come to a head and whether that was a change in feelings or whether it was a conversation about feelings that have been growing steadily for a while and they had just never talked about it and finally they did well or john or john tried to talk about it and paul was like i'm going to scotland with my girlfriend now well that the thing for me if this is the situation between them i would say that a lot of it if not most of it, hinges on what Paul's reaction was. Absolutely. Yeah. Because that Cause, can be Because John is mad at Paul. It's very yeah. focused on Paul. And we know that like afterwards, he's obsessed with letting everybody know he left. Paul didn't yes. leave him. He left right. Paul, right? Right. He dumped Paul. He's yeah. with Yoko now. And yes. And that also that just so everybody knows, he is very hetero sexual very there's a lot of performative (laughs) heterosexuality yeah a lot of posturing 
so out of nowhere like which is so hilarious because he's just gotten done with the last few years of the Beatles and like flower power and and then all of a sudden these aggro working class hero macho <laughs> or macho as he would say <laughs> yeah macho with like like a buzz cut and muscle t-shirt but that's important because they're guys and so they have extra baggage because they're guys yeah that I don't have absolutely and also I don't have like queer baggage right that wasn't an issue like I, I wasn't like ashamed of ashamed my gay yeah. feelings or anything like that so mm-hmm. both of those things are complicating factors and then also like what Paul's reaction would be now like I said I've been on the other side of it too and like one situation did turn kind of ugly I mean I could in a wounded rejected male ego kind of way yeah yeah like I yeah it's easier for me to put myself in Paul's shoes Mm -hmm. so like um although I've had that situation before where a friend has felt stuff and I haven't felt stuff that's never upsetting it's either flattering or awkward Awkward. Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah 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 but I will say this like my best friend in the world we've we've been best friends since we were 15 okay so that is kind of like John and Paul (laughs) it is yeah if she you know out of the blue was like Phoebe I'm I'm in love with you and I want to you know be your wife or something just thinking about that kind of gives me a panic attack yeah absolutely yep and the only thing I would be thinking about like the only thing I would be thinking about is how do I not lose this friendship yes and how do I not hurt her yeah and that's it yeah nothing else yeah and I would be more than happy to if I really hurt her feelings or something like I would tolerate Mm -hmm. a lot of acting out probably yeah Mm -hmm. because you would understand yeah and I'd feel awful yeah well that sounds familiar yeah (laughs) that's what to me paul's behavior is exactly that like yes i don't find his behavior confusing there's no perfect way to react to that situation yeah exactly like i said it gives me fucking agita just to think about it like <laughs> even, like the scenario is like i'm sweating you know like I'm, it's totally. stressful, right yeah it's a nightmare it's a nightmare but how would i handle i mean i'd obviously i'd just do my best and i'd try to navigate Hope for the it. best yeah exactly yeah. um and i'd do whatever i thought was right but put paul in that scenario and like <laughs> is he gonna act perfectly like of course not he's gonna freak out and be weird yeah. and trip all over yep. himself and he's gonna say something wildly inappropriate that is gonna he's really gonna, damage john he's gonna do the wrong thing at the wrong time yeah and he's not gonna be able to face that he's not gonna be able to say i'm sorry i reacted the wrong way 
I was feeling X, Y, and Z. He's going to want to bury it. He's going to want to bury it and never talk about it again. He's not going to come back calmly two days later and be like, no, listen, John, I'm I'm sorry. Listen, I'm sorry. I overreacted. He's going to be like, oh, please, God, let's never talk about this again. Please, please. You know what? Because I love you, John, I'm going to pretend you never said that. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's right. And I think that he would be sincere in thinking that that is That's the, best the best way forward. Yes. Here's another possibility. Hmm. Paul is very aware of the fact that people often have feelings that they wish they don't have. I think Paul often, very, very, very often has and had feelings that he wished he could turn off. Sure. So I can absolutely see him knowing that John felt that way but also sincerely believing that John did not want them to confront it. Why? Explain why. Because John doesn't want to want him. It's something that he can't yeah, help. Right, right, right. Um, I agree with you. I think Paul would think he's doing the right thing. And he would say, right. listen, John. I will help you ignore this feeling of yours. Yes. I know you can't help it, but I also know that you wish you didn't feel this way. And I am. 100 yes. percent capable of pretending that right, i don't right, know right, right. Yeah. That you feel that way yes yes you're welcome john <laughs> i honestly com- would completely understand paul feeling that way and doing that yeah i also could see we're talking about like handling things very wrong but with good <laughs> intentions i could yeah. also see paul like talking him out of it yes like oh john for on, hours. No. no you're heterosexual john You've had sex with women. Why? So why on earth would you want to be gay? If yeah, you, can right, be, right, if, you right. if you are capable of being not gay, then obviously that is what you must really want and would be the best for you. So I think that we should, you know, calm down. Plus or minus like fooling around has got to stop. That's not going to happen sure. again. Right. You know, I don't know if we're ready to get into that conversation, but <laughs> <laughs> Or like, this is why I wanted to stop this. That's right. Yeah. I didn't realize it meant so much to you. So I'm going to take it away now, (laughs) which would be terrible for John. But on the other hand, it's understandable. Paul has meaningless sex with hundreds of people. Yeah. It is not a hang up for Paul whatsoever. All right, so we've reached option number four, which really is a variation of number three. Um, John wanted a relationship, but Paul didn't. Only in this scenario, there is some sort of pre-existing physical or sexual element. And we're a bit in dark mode now, um, (laughs) (laughs) meaning we... We don't really have any support for this idea. We're just exploring what could be a plausible scenario between two people. Right. But But it is kind of the next step. Right. If we know that option three is most likely correct, but we still don't feel completely satisfied that it explains John's wounded rage against Paul. uh, Then we need to throw a bit of fuel onto that fire. To, to ask, like, what would really trigger him? 
we're not going to spend too much time on it, but let's play it out for the sake of conversation. So in this scenario, we're postulating um, not a full-blown affair, but maybe like a lighthearted fooling around, so to speak, um, (laughs) that's either singular or intermittent, and that Paul at least would consider just fun or what a hell however you put it a lark or what you know whatever like sort of the spirit of their teenage all right mate. insert Britishism here um yeah we don't have to be graphic I'm just saying that to make you laugh um yeah <laughs> well and I think it's important to like bring in the teenage wank games which well which went on way past teenage years they were doing circle jerks together the four Beatles as late as 1966 yeah well 65 right because it's when they were 1965 shoot, shoot. <laughs> yeah that's a victor spinetti story about when they were right. filming help um yeah. which people don't talk about because i think it's kind of embarrassing to the <laughs> to the surviving yeah. Beatles. well but, um, yeah it's not so much scandalous as it's just sort of yeah it's just kind embarrassing. of embarrassing well paul doesn't seem embarrassed yeah he had a recent interview where he's like snapping his fingers and laughing like i knew it was a normal thing to do Oh, how cute. No, it's funny. Paul Wickens is one of Paul McCartney's bandmates for low many a year, and his nickname is Wicks. And his college-age daughter made a comment, apparently, when she heard the quote from Paul about him and the Beatles jerking off together. And apparently her response was, oh, yeah, boys do that. It's called a communal. Yeah. And, and Paul's like, the kids today know what's up. All right. Well, thank you, Wix's daughter. But yes, for for validating Paul like that. I feel like people's reactions to this Beatles wank story was really over the top uh, (laughs) when this information was rediscovered via Paul's GQ article from 2018. Yeah, the the interview that spawned a million headlines. In the same article, Paul mentioned sleeping with a pair of prostitutes and... John having exactly. a threesome with some guy and his wife. <laughs> like no one even batted an eye at that. It's true. And everybody was completely fixated on the Beatles wanking together, which is odd because the wank thing has not only been known since forever. It was written into a play called Oh Calcutta in 1969. And also Paul talked about it in many years from now. Oh Yeah. Also, it was so harmless that the BBC wrote it into a TV production of John Lennon's life in like 1985. They literally had a scene where Pete Shaw and John are jerking off in some bushes together. Maybe the difference is that until now, most men in a position of writing BBC docudramas would have been the men who went to boys only boarding schools in England. No, I know what you're saying. It's like if it was a byproduct of an earlier time when there were boys' schools and um, exactly, and people didn't just have kinda, a, yeah, you it was accepted. A lot of ex- and also, there wasn't a lot of mixing of the sexes, so there was, you didn't have a lot of contact with the opposite sex. Sure. So and that's what happens. Yeah, I think it was just more of an accepted thing that horny yeah. young boys who don't have girls around are gonna find other ways to vent exactly. their horniness <laughs> exactly yeah so it was just viewed i think as a normal part of sexuality you right know, back in the day yeah which it was and still is well exactly which it was and still is but this is very important because um victor spinetti 
brought this story up in his book specifically to illustrate how sweet and innocent the Beatles were <laughs> because he wrote in his book, I'll just read the, the excerpts. He said, even in private, I knew they hadn't become hard bitten because if they got <laughs> stuck together far away from home, the most daring thing they got up to was a wanking game. And he wrote like they would lie in their beds in the dark and jerk off and make each other laugh before they could climax. Their little twin beds in the same room that they slept in. So on tour. On tour. That's uh, hilarious. So the, the point is, these guys aren't nervous about being naked together or jerking off in the same room or even having sex in the same bed. Mark Lewison had a story from the cavern days of the, these two girls that John and Paul had sex with um, all four of them in the same bed together. So like they probably showered together at some point, like not in a sexy way, just like in a, in a locker room, like you're going to like all the hot water is going to be gone soon kind of way. Like hurry up. We've got to go. Oh, of course. Yeah. And our point here is that their physical boundaries are different from most right other guys and so it may seem like a big deal to some people might mean less than nothing to him so whatever your personal comfort level with nudity or sexuality is and whatever you think is normal does not matter what matters is what they think is normal yes so for this section we are asking everyone to set aside their own personal preconceptions about sexuality like we said Paul wasn't embarrassed about the teenage wank stuff. He thought it was funny. And for the record, so must have John, because he told Victor Spinetti about it. And so did Spinetti, because he wrote about it as a cute anecdote (laughs) in his book. And so did Pete Shotton, because he wrote in his memoir, and this is a quote, what's a wank between friends? Okay, (laughs) And the BBC thought it was fine, too, because they scripted, filmed, and aired it. And as we'll go into, like, an incompatibility in boundaries might have been part of what uh, the problem between John and Paul was. Yes, yeah. We'll, we'll go into that more later. But the important factual takeaway here is that all the Beatles, but John and Paul in particular, have a relatively deep level of physical intimacy for a male friendship. And while obviously there's nothing wrong with that, it might also inadvertently have created some confusion, you know, some no fault confusion. Okay. So the idea for scenario number four is that there's something sexual or pseudosexual, sexual adjacent, parasexual, <laughs> <laughs> something like that going on. And Paul just thinks it's funny or fun, but um, maybe it means a little bit more to John or it's something that he wants to explore further. You know, he wants to kick it up a notch from that and make it more of a relationship thing. Right. And John said he was jealous of that ability of Paul's to not get emotionally involved in his affairs, his sexual affairs, and to move on to the next one quickly afterwards. So maybe it wasn't just Paul's ability to do that with women that John envied. Maybe he was also saying, man, I wish I could just let that roll off my back the way Paul did. John does in general seem to get more emotionally involved with sex in general. 
uh, there's a whole part in May Pang's book. He convinces her to do acid with him, and he's like, uh-huh. "Yeah, let's take acid and let's become one." And he, oh gets, no, John. Yeah, no, he's Again. totally like, "This is how it's the spiritual," and they have sex, and he's like, "This is how it should be. You become one with the person, and all this kind of stuff." <sighs> he's intense, John. I'm sorry, but John Lennon is fucking intense. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And like we were discussing the other day, um, just like random anecdotes that we get from fans that he slept with, like a very bizarre amount of them were like, John was so tender and he lit a candle and (laughs) kissed my face. (laughs) You know what I mean? And like gently undressed me and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. That's lovely. Of course not. No. That's how some people roll and that's good for them. And that's a lot of people's fantasy. So for sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm not judging anybody who's into that no. or John. <laughs> We're just saying he's romantic. He's really, really, really into romance. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I definitely agree. And maybe this is a complicating factor too, but like, I definitely agree that Paul likes being on the receiving end of all that adoration. Well, of course. You know, maybe up until this point. <laughs> yeah. So it's very, it's very easy for me to see this scenario playing out in a way that would make Paul look really bad. But I can also see it playing out in a way that is none too flattering to John either, because as much sympathy as I have for John and for his, um, pain here i don't know that i have a whole lot of bandwidth left for throwing a whole bunch of sympathy and analysis onto men who respond to romantic rejection by torching the object of their desire oh i definitely don't so yeah so on the one hand i'm like oh paul did you take you know did you take john for granted and you know really handle that like an absolute clod sure that could absolutely be something that happened on the other hand john did you tell your best friend and songwriting partner that you didn't want him anymore if he wouldn't put out like let that sink in if that's the case how devastating and confusing would that have been for paul paul doesn't deserve retaliation either way no, he doesn't deserve to be punished for having sex or for not having sex. Correct. Yeah. Or for putting a stop to sex that was already happening at any time for any reason. However, if Paul is giving John like a taste, if there's a little bit of something going on, it complicates things for sure. Yeah. N- not because it puts Paul at fault or anything. Right. Just because it does, it's slightly changes john's reasonable expectations totally absolutely yep yeah on the other hand (laughs) crazy for that to change your expectations about a relationship or your hopes it's not crazy for you to think oh i've been wanting this looks like they do too they probably feel the same way that i do it's normal and fine to have emotions like that to feel that way however you don't really have any right to be angry at the other person Unless someone is right. deliberately lying to you, yes. just telling you what you want to hear in order to get into your pants, then that's a fucked mm-hmm. up situation. But very, yeah. 
I, there's no scenario where I see Paul doing that. Like, why would he? Yeah, that's just a, that scenario doesn't make any sense. First and foremost, because these two love each other. Yeah, they do. I mean, it could be that Paul was like so incredibly cavalier and reckless that he just selfishly took advantage of whatever John was offering without a thought for the consequences. But I don't know. He just, I don't know. Paul is a risk averse individual, if nothing else. But he's also a thrill seeker. But he's but also, yes. he is. Yeah. He, is. <laughs> he loves the adrenaline. That's true. Yeah. At least physically. He yeah. Likes to stare death in the face. He does. Um, he does. He's so weird. Um, that's just the thing about Paul is like, I'm kind of not shocked about anything I find out about right? him. Right? Yeah. yeah. He's full of surprises and secrets and mysteries. And so I'm not yeah. ruling anything out like, oh, my Paul would never. Never. <laughs> yeah. Like maybe he would. I don't know. Right. Maybe he would be criminally reckless with john's heart or use john's desire in a machiavellian mustache twirling scheme to gain power <laughs> in, the, in the relationship take over the band as people like to say but it seems more likely that if something physical happened between them that gave john the wrong idea or whatever paul didn't intend it to and immediately regretted it which by the way would not make john feel any better like if Paul's saying, oh, I'm so sorry for accidentally making you fall in love with me. I didn't mean it just happens wherever I go. People just fall at my feet. Ugh. I'm so sorry. Like that would not make John feel better. That's insult to injury there. Right. No, that's humiliating. Yeah. That doesn't make you feel better. That may- no. That's the type of thing that makes you want to prove to the other person that they're not that great after all. Yes. That would, that would definitely make sense of, of John's like, get over yourself, Paul. You're not that fucking great, you know? <laughs> That's right. So taking scenario three, where John has a desire to take the relationship with Paul to the next level, so to speak. Um, but then just adding in a sort of embarrassing and bitterness inducing element of uh, apparently it meant more to me than it did to you all along so that's also kind of a dangerous position to be in too because now that person has something on you if they exactly. want to weaponize exactly. it against you they they could. right although yes. they're going to implicate themselves too so maybe it's like a, a murder suicide pact or something <laughs> <laughs> i mean in in that scenario paul would have a lot more to worry about because john is more reckless and more willing to oh for sure you to weaponize against the people he loves this is the main reason that i have a hard time believing that there was sex like casual sex between them because if john had that stick to beat paul with like i feel that he absolutely would have at some point Mm -hmm. like he would have told he would have told people i don't i don't mean like spin magazine like he's gonna take out an ad (laughs) or something but just like to the people around him (laughs) If he was able to, you know, say like, oh yeah, we fucked once and Paul got all clingy and jealous. Like he would absolutely say that to everyone. And also like, if that were the case, there's no possible reason that Yoko would just 
make up a version where John looks like the unrequited party, right? Yeah. And then also, yeah. like Harry independently invents the same story. What? No. It seems just as realistic to me that John believed, you know, he read love in Paul's eyes. I don't think there needs to have been sexual contact for John to feel like Paul led him on. So going back to that situation that you had with your straight friend when you were 18, (laughs) (laughs) let me take you back. If she had slept (laughs) with you and then declined a relationship, would you have been angry? No, I wouldn't be angry, um, just hurt. If there was, if there was sex followed by a rejection, um, I guess my first thought would be, was the sex bad? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sure. And if she had buyer's remorse afterwards, like that would be kind of humiliating. But if she was like, no, the sex was fun. I'm just not interested in, in, you know, a whole thing. Yeah, that might be more hurtful because it's then it's a personal rejection. You're attractive. I just don't want to wake up with you. Yeah, I'd be hurt. I wouldn't be angry. I don't mean to make this a male female thing, but um, to me, that's more of a male reaction. (sighs) Well, I completely agree. And I think especially for John, I don't know that John was capable of feeling hurt without anger following pretty quickly on the heels of that hurt well that is his pattern for sure yeah yeah i would say the greater the hurt the greater his anger even if the person who hurt him doesn't deserve to be punished yeah it might be happening anyway yeah and again i can only speak from my own experience so and that's only worth whatever it's worth but having had this experience with both men and women Mm. women have never gotten angry at me in this situation like guys have not reacted well yeah and that's a product you know of of societal gender inequality it's not something innate in men right but (laughs) i mean if we're talking about a situation where either you internalize or you externalize um, yes yeah we just had that conversation about john and paul where john tends to externalize and get and lash out and paul tends to internalize you know, he's, he's put it into words as much as he ever reveals anything about his inner feelings, you know, like we know, <laughs> like when the band broke up and, and when he and John went their separate ways that he took it in, internal, Paul did, and was like, I'm a fuck up. I'm a loser. That's right. He blamed oh, he's himself. so right about me. Yeah. I'm for, just nothing. And he did that for, for a couple years. And, and I'm not even saying that Paul did it in a constructive way or that his way was better. I'm I'm not, I'm not arguing that because I think like all things being equal, ideally you do want to externalize some of that because if you internalize it too much, it's going to, you're going to collapse it on yourself. So, um, absolutely. So some of that you need to be able to push away and say, this isn't all my fault. So is, so doing either to an extreme is dangerous, but whatever we're talking about what we're observing about their behavior. So that's the observation right yep again we know john is distraught after returning from india he confesses all his affairs to cynthia on the plane ride home and then a few days later tells her let's have another baby (laughs) 
that speaks volumes. And Pete Shotton, who is with John at this time, said that John had been desperately grasping at straws, as far as I was concerned, and there wasn't even a straw there. John and Paul go to New York City in May to announce Apple. Bob Spitz writes that friends agreed that getting John away from London might do him a world of good. Being alone with just Paul to steady him might have a calming influence. The two of them stay alone at Nat Weiss's apartment instead of a hotel for privacy. I don't know. Maybe they were supposed to have a heart to heart that weekend. Yeah. And maybe they did, but it didn't go well. Like that interview with Larry Kane, uh, Paul definitely looks like he's in the doghouse. <laughs> he said afterward that it was because he did too many drugs or bad drugs or something. Yeah. Um, but that's the first time I think we ever see Paul on eggshells with John. Well, I agree. There's definitely a different dynamic starting yes. there. They are not on the same wavelength. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot there's, in that interview. <laughs> there is, there are undercurrents galore, yeah. Yeah, that are sort of hard to parse out, but <laughs> you can see there's some tension there. There's something underneath. Yes. yes. And all that we know for sure is that at the end of the trip, Linda Eastman joined Paul and John on the ride to the airport, which is still burned in John's brain three years later. <laughs> for some reason yeah. well probably for the rest of his life and then as soon as john got back home he invited yoko to his house she spends the night and the next morning he abruptly declares that he is ready to commit the rest of his life to her so you know i think whatever happened or didn't happen between john and paul uh paul just fumbled the ball yeah although you know, if you have to say something to someone, some things cannot be said in a way that will avoid them being angry, angry. about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe Paul did like write himself a script of what to say in such a way as not to anger John. I don't think he did, but like he could have, and John still could have been furious for the rest of time. Like some things, there's no way to sugarcoat. Some things, if you try to sugarcoat it, that just makes it's it worse, worse for the other person. Yeah. yeah. I sympathize with Paul because I know that he, I know that he loved John and I know that he didn't want the friendship to break up and didn't want the partnership to break up and didn't want the band to break up. So I know that he would have tried yeah, to, as best yeah. to know how yeah. to keep all of those things together. But maybe he didn't know how, and maybe there was no way to do it. And he broke John Lennon's heart. Well, that's definitely the takeaway for me. I mean, yeah. he, even without this, you know, playing out this hypothetical situation, it's pretty obvious that he broke John's yeah. heart. Yeah, yeah. And also, Paul's takeaway from the whole thing is that his fatal flaw in the relationship was not being able to tell john he loved him yeah so what else can you take away from that how in the world do you review all of this information and come to the conclusion that john wasn't reeling from heartbreak 
extremely subjective cherry picking of facts and evidence, specifically with the goal in mind of making it fit John's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. T- taking all of John's bravado. Talking points. Value. Yeah. And yeah. or at least the ones they like, because John also said a whole bunch of other stuff that well, contradicted. It, yeah, it's true. All the stuff in this that. podcast that nobody, right. that people it, just ignore. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a couple things. Okay. First of all, the one that we're talking about here is not degrading to John Lennon and should not be perceived by anyone as degrading to John Lennon. Okay. No, it's not degrading to be in love. Exactly. He's romantic. He got hurt. He acted crazy. And then he coped in the best way that he could. We're critical of his actions that hurt others, particularly Paul, the person that he loves, but it's not our business to judge his life choices. Yeah. John did what he felt he had to, to survive. And he found somebody else he was crazy about. You know, by all accounts, (laughs) John John and Yogo had an incredibly strong bond. And, you know, just because we're critical of the public version, like their stories and statements, doesn't mean that they didn't truly love each other. And they had a child that they both loved. So that's all of that is very positive. There's nothing for John to be ashamed of in this story. Like, I definitely do feel like John is ashamed and humiliated yeah and went to great lengths to write a different story and to convince everybody that that other story was real i wish he didn't feel like he had to do that but i understand why he felt like he had to do that yeah and in my opinion the real story is pretty clear it's not just a matter of the official story not quite adding up and we're sitting here thinking Hmm, there's probably more here than meets the eye. Uh, the real story is right there. It meets the eye. Yeah. It's just not being acknowledged. We've been really thorough and we've cited our sources and we've given you our rationale for everything that we think. So my point is that we're not doing this to humiliate John or to humiliate Yoko or Paul or Linda, or the kids, or any of them. We're sympathetic to everybody here. Yeah. I mean, I wish we had something a little more concrete than like John contemplated an affair with Paul. Like that's so vague. I mean, just meaning in terms of like what John actually wanted out of it. Well, it was something big enough to make him go nuclear and to remain wounded for the rest of his life. Yeah. And to think that Paul had done something actively enough for it to keep him angry at Paul forever for doing it. So when Yoko says via Philip Norman that, quote, John had contemplated an affair with Paul, but had been deterred by Paul's immovable heterosexuality, I think that it came up explicitly. Otherwise, what is he so mad about? Right. I agree with that. Why is he humiliated? If his unvoiced theoretical thoughts. (laughs) Right. Yes. If Paul never responded to his thought letters, (laughs) why is he so mad? Right. 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 Obviously, there was um, a confrontation. Yeah. Of some kind. I would agree that it would necessitate some sort of something. 
Yeah. John thinks that Paul knew what John wanted from him. Yes. And John thinks that Paul refused. Yes. So it's not just his internal insecurity and you you know we talk a lot about how incredibly insecure and rejection sensitive john was so i could i could buy him being that angry over perceived rejection for a year yeah maybe two but for the rest of his life uh, i just don't see it because there would always be a part of him that was like maybe i misread sure maybe i jumped to conclusions Exactly. No, I think in a, there has to have been an explicit rejection. And I still think that John finally said, we're going to talk about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Paul it, either said, no, we're not, and stormed out of the room, or, or yeah. he listened and, and said no. And it wounded him for the rest of his life. And then maybe Paul is confused because one minute John is suicidal in India and then a month later he's like I'm madly in love with this woman and now John is the one acting like nothing ever happened between them <laughs> yeah okay so setting aside whether John has a right to behave in the way that he does like we're not going to judge his behavior for a moment but like would that explain his emotional reaction yes absolutely absolutely especially with his fear of abandonment 100 percent, yeah and the fact that it went on and on in the same way that his you know wounds from being abandoned as a child never fully healed i think this is would be on that on that same scale or at least approaching the same scale would scenario three and or four um explain paul's behavior yes what it really explains to me, the biggest sort of mystery that it solves is why Paul refuses to do anything about John bringing Yoko into the studio. Hmm. Even though from uh, the lunchroom, let it be tapes, it seems that the other players wanted mm-hmm. him to. Mm-hmm. And even maybe were a bit confused as to why he wasn't doing his usual job of, you know, containing John's excesses. Yeah. Um, and Paul just keeps telling them, you know, no, well, we can't. We, who, who are we to say anything? And they're kind of like, uh, I don't know, his business partners? Yeah, like, his band. <laughs> if you put that in the context of a th- scenario three or scenario four, then, of course, that's the only thing Paul can say. How can Paul possibly tell John to chill out about his new girlfriend after he broke his heart? If Paul was like, no, you just need to find somebody else. And then John finds somebody else. Right, right. Yeah. You can't have me. Oh, but you can't have anyone else either. Like, you know, he can't, he cannot say that. Yeah. And if John is like (laughs) dragging her around, waving her in Paul's face. Right. Paul's like, okay, I get it. (laughs) Maybe I deserve that. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to take my lumps, try to work through this. I mean, just to be clear, we're not saying that their entire relationship can be, you know, boiled down to some isolated sexual rejection. Not at all. Their relationship is deep and complex. And we're not saying <laughs> that the other scenarios that that Paul was emotionally unavailable and or, you know, physically, logistically distancing himself from the Beatles 
options one and two weren't also true. All these options can and likely did simultaneously coexist along with all the band issues. Right, exactly. And in addition, whatever mental illness John suffered from may have manifested as idealizing his partner, putting them on a high pedestal, and then suddenly swinging in the other direction and being unreasonably disappointed in them and massively disillusioned. That John suffered from these symptoms is a strong possibility. But in my opinion, mental illness per se doesn't explain most of John's behavior. Yeah. And they all speak to the same issue, essentially, which is losing Paul. And that would have been absolutely trauma-inducing to John. Yes. The idea that John Lennon just whimsically tossed aside the most important relationship in his life in 1968 is ludicrous. We're not entertaining that anymore. Yeah, we're past that. play this out one more time if the last scenario is correct john has feelings and he wants a romantic relationship Mm -hmm. and paul's not into it or he's you know he's not comfortable with it or he's just not into guys or you know whatever the the problem is yeah um what's the best way for him to handle that best case scenario best case scenario best case scenario like if you were giving advice for paul mccartney and john lennon okay so i would say the kindest way would be to take john by the hand (laughs) hold his face in your hands and tell him that you love him but you can't do that you know give him the i love you and then right away rip the band-aid off and then go back to telling him how much you love him for like five hours and stroke his hair and hold his hand and let him say everything he needs to and not to put too fine a point on it but basically all the things Paul has spent the past 10 years saying he wishes he had done for John all right let me ask you this then Oh no. <laughs> Is there any possibility in your mind, just and obviously we don't know. <laughs> Is there any way you think Paul did that? No. Is there any way that you think that would occur to Paul? Not at the time. I think it was like you were saying before, you know, if your best friend in the world said that, the immediate reaction would be panic. Because it would be terrifying to contemplate damaging or losing the relationship or being put in the position of having to hurt this person, regardless of any, you know, internalized homophobia or weird affection hangups or whatever his deal is. But I think it's clear nowadays that Paul wishes he had done something differently with John. And it revolves around showing him more affection somehow. He's been very consistent on that point the past 10 years. Yeah, for real. More like the the past 40 years. (laughs) (laughs) He he said it a million ways. Though I feel it's escalated a lot in the past like 10, 15 years, maybe. 
yeah, I think at almost 80 years old, um, Paul has enough hindsight and awareness to understand what the issue was because even last year on the Adam Buxton show, he was able to articulate the solution to the problem. I was thinking the other day, actually, I thought, I wish I just sat and hugged him all the time we were together. Mm-hmm. But as you know, Adam, that probably would be slightly out of line. <laughs> but it's the kind of thing you think, you know, what about that? But guys didn't do that kind of thing Yeah, where I'm from. That to me is reminiscent of John's famous quote to Sandra Sheevy, um, where he says, you know, being with a woman means your best friend can hold you without <laughs> dot, 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 dot. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. like, he doesn't finish the sentence, but I assume he means without being embarrassed or weird or defensive or, or, you know, just feeling like you're doing something wrong. Sounds to me like John is articulating in 1972 that he needed a partner who could hold him. And Paul, 48 years later, is saying, I wish that I had done that for you. Even here in 2020, Paul's saying, I would do that now. And I know it's okay now, but I wasn't able to do it back then. It, it would have been out of line. Which is sad because, first of all, it wouldn't have been out of line, you know, <laughs> and I don't think John would have considered it out of line. You know, I think John really needed it. So I, I feel sad that Paul felt judged or constrained or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that he's, he's still trying to kind of like explain himself. I think he feels really guilty about it. I think so, too. He didn't because it would have been out of line. Why? Why would that have been out of line in Paul's mind at the time? Did he feel like John would have not liked it? That John wouldn't have wanted him to put his arm around him or whatever? That John would have been like, oh, fuck off, you'd poof or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe he would have that fear in the back of his mind because the guys really do beat each other up about that sort of stuff. So, um, even if it's in an affectionate way, but like, we're going to beat that out of you for your own That's good. Right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, Paul would have definitely been trained not to, to get sappy or do anything. This It's just like soft, you know? What about a fear of opening up and vulnerability? Yeah, I feel like sometimes people underestimate like how hard that is sometimes just to open up to your friends and family like sometimes it's just hard you know especially if historically that hasn't been your role in the relationship yeah also it's just not crazy to be wary of opening up to john lennon right (laughs) it's rational to be hesitant to give him ammunition against you well how many times how many times have we read that he hated weakness and that he like Yes. Zoomed in on people's weaknesses, like, you know, like seeking missile. Right. Yes, exactly. So Mm -hmm. that's a hard person to open up to. Absolutely. It's not crazy to be reluctant to hand John ammunition against you when you know he won't hesitate to strike whenever the mood (laughs) arises. So there are plenty of reasons why it it would have been 
hard and just awkward for Paul to offer that. Well, sure. And I mean, if this is Paul's way of keeping himself safe, I feel like we should honor that. And beyond that, we should consider the possibility that Paul was correct to do that. And that maybe if he hadn't done that, it would have been even worse. I mean, we can't, we mm. can't know that. And it's entirely possible that the only reason he and John were able to be together for so long and so productively and so warmly was because of whatever bit of distance Paul kept between them. Like it, even if it disappointed or hurt John sometimes, um, it might've been necessary. Maybe Paul was right to do it. Nowadays, or in the past 20 years, let's say, Paul says things like this comment to Adam Buxton about wishing he had held John that seem like non sequiturs, or like he's answering a question that no one asked. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes I think people just take it at face value, like, oh, that Paul, he loves John so much, he can't stop talking about him. Yeah, even even when it's not about John, he always finds a way to make he it makes about it John. about John. Yeah, which is the face value take on it. So I'm not calling it crazy right. or anything. No, um, yeah. Although I definitely believe that Paul loves John, I also think that he says things like this to get them on the record. Mm. So okay. it kind of takes an opportunity. Even if it it's not something that's been asked. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't really fit into the interview of the day, but if he sees an opening that's good enough, he's like, all right, good it. enough. I think he wants us to hear these things. I think he wants us to figure this story out. Hmm. And I think he knows that even if it takes a long time, their story will eventually be told. So in that case, it's important for him that we know his side of things, meaning that he really did love John and that he was devastated when he lost their partnership in the band because if and when the story changes in the future, he doesn't want to come off like an asshole. So that quote on Adam Buxton was in response to the question, what's your favorite John song? So Paul was not asked, what would you do differently? Or why did things get so crazy when you broke up? Right. <laughs> like if this was Jeopardy, we would not be able to, <laughs> to, to guess what the question was. What the question is. It is unrelated. Not at all. Definitely right. not. He's never going to write a tell-all book about them. But I, I do think that he has little pieces of information that he does want to get out because he does and he has said this actually that it is somebody else's job to compile all this shit and tell the story of john and paul and i agree with him like he's the artist it is yeah it is he's the subject yeah he is and it's not his job to do a john and paul beetle podcast like that's (laughs) that's our job you know yeah yeah it's our job to figure this stuff out. So anyway, here's the rest of what he said on Buxton. And I say, you know, what, what happens in later years now, looking back on it all, you just think of little things. You think, oh, 
that's why that happened or whatever. Or you may just think, oh, I'll just sit around and hug him forever because that's the depth of my feeling Mm -hmm. for him. Oh, that's why that happened or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's why that happened. Oh, that's why we broke up because I didn't sit around and hugging John forever. Which, by the way, I would have done and loved him enough to do. I just couldn't do it at the time. So Paul surely has a different perspective on their relationship now than he did 50 years ago. And of course, he has regrets about how things played out and how he handled things. Mm -hmm. So when he says, I wish I had sat and hugged John all the time, which means held him. You hug someone all the time. That means you're holding them. Well, and like um, sat and hold him. Like, yes. Like stop what you're doing. Not like, exactly. you know, hug somebody goodbye in the doorway. Right. <laughs> like, stop what you're doing. Sit down. Take the time out. And yeah. Not the bro hug with like. <laughs> yeah, correct. The thump <laughs> on the shoulder. Right. Yeah. And he says all the time, all the time we were together. And forever. Those, I mean, those are big statements. Yeah. Okay, here's the problem. <laughs> I think that Paul is not saying what he means. <laughs> yes. I, like, well, <laughs> meaning like, I think he's, he's editing himself because he can't say the thing out loud. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think Paul knows John was in love with me, but he can't say that. No. And he never will of course say not. that. Yeah. No. This is why <laughs> it's important that Yoko says something or Harry Nelson says something because, you know, Paul sort of talks around it a lot. Which is all he can do. He can't say it. At, like, yeah. even if he wanted to, he would be pilloried. And I think that everybody else kind of follows Paul's lead, um, meaning like no one is going to overstep. I think that's sort of also what he is saying when he's like listen if john had been into dudes he would have been into me like i i think so too i understand why that comes off like buffoonish arrogant arrogant right if you're attracted to men by default you're gonna want to fuck me because yeah (laughs) or whatever you know whatever look at this yeah yeah there are a lot of bad ways to interpret that even though he also says that gay men never hit on him that cannot be true there's just no way that's well, just the thing absurd is on its paul, face paul plays down all kinds of stuff like he also plays right? down what a fucking whore he was in the 60s <laughs> true which yeah. is not typical of rock stars do, do you no. know what i mean like every yeah, once absolutely. in a while he'll he'll do a mild brag but most of the time he's like i'm yeah. straight laced <laughs> your fetish for normalcy yeah it's like your biggest tell (laughs) that word does not mean what you think it means yeah (laughs) paul will also i don't know if this is a british thing i suspect maybe it is but he often soft sells things like underplays yeah yeah he does like it like in the first episode we talked about it's only me i love you that story and how only once as far as we know did paul ever actually include the i love you part in that story 
yeah. because it's awkward for him to say aloud like it, he's uncomfortable another good example of this which a moral to pointed out on their blog was the story about paul visiting yoko soon after john was killed yoko told paul john really loved you which of course he did and that's a very nice thing to say to somebody who's grieving and and very gracious on yoko's part yes which which was the point which which paul thanked right. her for exactly but paul told this anecdote several times and his wording changed according yes. to presumably his comfort level either his comfort level with the person he was talking to or his, just his his comfort well, level that day that day right or like who he per- perceived the demographic who would be reading this particular interview might be right or who right. knows but in one version yoko says john was really fond of you okay right quite and, fond yeah and then and another it's john really did like you and then yeah. finally he says that yoko said john still loved me after all which is by the way also kind of different from i mean it's it's different from john really was fond of you old chap he still loved me is is different too because it's not like oh you know what paul deep down he did love you it's not in question that he loved you no he still Mm -hmm. loved you yeah like he loved you in the cab on the way to the hospital that's right oh i'm sorry um so the point is i'm sure yoko said to paul john loved you yeah Paul, paul just isn't always comfortable enough to say those words right yeah it's like that that um that key west story about when they mm. got drunk and you know revealed their love to each yeah other, right sometimes it's like well we just sort of cried because we were drunk and also it had something to do with our moms i guess and then other times we like sobbed about how much we loved each other (laughs) exactly exactly you know how mates are you know how bros do you know how guys are you know we do like we punched each other in the face a few times kicked each other in the balls and then begrudgingly said i love you bro and we high-fived and then sometimes (laughs) it's like depending on his mood he's like this was an emotional turning point for us yes and that i hang on to for the for the rest of my life exactly that i've evoked in song several times so like it was a peak of of my life yeah right so due to that tendency of paul's to sort of uh, (laughs) awkwardly downplay events Mm. that are uh, clearly deeply emotional and important to him yeah uh, until he eventually reveals more intimate details you know if and when or right i think the safest thing for us to assume is that all of these events were probably much more intimate than he is comfortable revealing to the newspaper yeah like yeah take the most intimate version of whatever story he's telling and then just like press down on the gas a little bit (laughs) at 10 (laughs) percent that's probably closer to what actually happened yeah i think so too in the last episode we talked about how do you sleep and how that one time paul was like i can't even think about it too much i'll just end up thinking that he's evil and then other times he's like you know i was a bit cheesed off (laughs) (laughs) it caused my my dander up yeah (laughs) 
So yes, yeah. of course that means he was fucking devastated. Yes. I think this is partly just Paul's natural way of speaking. Not that he can't be blunt, but I think he does tend to speak delicately about delicate matters. Like mm-hmm. he's wary he, of overstatement. He just um, he's tactful. And people like me who are blunt don't talk like that. But I think, (laughs) you know, if you're tactful, (laughs) that's how you talk. But I do also think that it is kind of a way of having his cake and eating it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like there's a little bit of fan service and now he says things sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. Some fans love to refer to the Beatles and and John and Paul in particular as brothers and that is a a term that they've both used Mm -hmm. for each other although they've also used marriage a million times too I mean more often than brothers but yeah they don't primarily refer to each other as brothers but they have so like for instance if that is where your comfort zone is you can absolutely retain that point of view and you have direct quotes from john and paul to back you up if you want to call them brothers exactly but then sometimes i think paul says just enough about john to indicate that it was different yes almost like a dog whistle yes so yeah those who hear it hear it and those who don't want to, don't have to. Right. And speaking of dogs, <laughs> this story is definitely a puzzle piece. Paul is wrestling with the puppy and John is staring at him and he's like, "Why? I've never seen you like that before. This is an important story to Paul because he included it in many years from now. And then he brought it up again in his lyrics book. But I don't know how to read between the lines on it. <laughs> Did something intimate happen between them? Like, I don't, I don't really know what to take away from the story. But following the pattern, that kind of seems like where it's going, right? Yeah, I mean, we know it's significant. He's always putting it in terms of him being cuddly with the dog here's the quote from the book one of the unlikely side effects was that john became very sympathetic toward me when he came around and saw me playing with martha i could tell that he liked her (laughs) (laughs) okay unlikely side effect yeah unforeseeable medical sequelae of (laughs) john liking my new puppy was that he became sympathetic to me. John was a very guarded person, which was partly where all his wit came from. He'd had a very difficult upbringing, but I could be that way too, blah, 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 blah. But seeing me with Martha, with my guard down, all of a sudden he started warming to me. And so he let his guard down too. What are you saying? What happened? I mean, I don't even know what to do with that. I guess, so we talked earlier about John hating weakness. And so maybe by sympathetic, Paul is saying something to do with that. Like, 
like uh, uh, Paul realized that John felt kindly and supportive. Toward but him. he but he can't be like in 1966. I noticed a change in our relationship where John became, uh, you know, a better friend, more sympathetic to me. And I've traced it all back to that afternoon with Martha. You know what I mean? Like that, that's not what he's saying. He's talking about a very specific incident where he's cuddling with Martha and then bada bing, something something happened happened that he cannot say what it is. But also his hints suck because I don't know what he's trying to say. A lot of people did do a test that John became very sweet after acid. So maybe there was something of a general shift in John's behavior. Like maybe, you know, he stopped being so. Yeah. Like I said, I agree that he could make the observation that John, after doing acid, you know, at that period of time, he began to open up a little bit more. He, whatever, grew his hair long. He started wearing glasses. He chilled out a bit. But that's not this story. Nope. He, he still is saying something specific about this specific moment, which I, I don't think he chose arbitrarily. He puts it in the specific context of him cuddling with Martha. And he always does. So that makes me think, you know, it resulted in something physical i mean maybe they cuddled this is the man who once said if he could have john back for one day that he would spend it in bed with him because he specifically missed physical contact with john and he's he's mentioned bed sharing several times a specific form of intimacy between them yeah it was important that's cuddling exactly maybe this was the first time they cuddled where it wasn't by necessity Paul's wording in this story actually reminded me of how Marishk Koger described Paul. Marishk was a, a member of the artist collective The Fool, and she and Paul had an affair in 1967. Well, of uh, course they did. Of course they did, even though he had a girlfriend, she had a boyfriend. Who was working professionally with Paul. Yeah, but she says there was just like, there was great chemistry between them, and they were both just like, well, what are you going to do? So, what are you going to do? <laughs> anyway, she said, that Paul's was a sympathetic and warm personality and he had a great sense of humor. And she also says, I noticed empathy in the way he dealt with people, which is expressed in the songs he wrote. And plus he loved animals. (laughs) She also liked, um, first of all, I love that she's describing his personality. Like those are all the attractive things about him it's interesting that she also mentions animals yeah well i think babies and animals bring out yeah his super super soft side what's more important about this story let me get back to specifics here we let our guards down it sounds like a sweet bonding moment between john Mm -hmm. and paul for some reason and you know if you do like somebody And then you get to see a side of them that you've never seen before. That's exciting. It is. So we actually have an audio of Martha interrupting a BBC interview with Paul and John conducted at Paul's house around the time that this bizarre, inscrutable story takes place. (laughs) Very important story. (laughs) When Martha (laughs) is a mere seven weeks old. And Paul does sound warm and funny. 
and soft. Oh, yeah. And John does sound sympathetic toward him. You'll have to excuse the dog listeners, but he doesn't know we're on the radio. How old is this dog? Seven, seven weeks, actually, seven weeks, so it doesn't really understand about the BBC yet. What type of dog is it? Uh, old, old, English, old English sheepdog, it will be eventually. It's a young English sheepdog. <laughs> it's a spaniel. <laughs> right, where have we got to? Oh, yes, these songs. Do you, do, you, do you use piano, guitars, what, when you're playing? Uh, anything, <laughs> you know, piano or guitar. Do. Yeah, that's about our limit. I'm just finding I don't know enough chords to uh, write them. The guitar, so I'll have to get some old fella to come in and play to me. <laughs> it's got to be an old fella, though. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't be one of these young whiz bang kids, you know. I think on stories like this, that Paul needs to be pushed a little gently for sure. Yeah. But I think he can and will open up if he has a sympathetic interviewer. <laughs> Preferably maybe like someone young with a progressive view on sexuality. Someone that Paul trusts that he can be open with. He also opens up more, I think, with female interviewers. Like we've said many times, all of this is a very delicate, sensitive, and personal subject. Yeah. And we don't want to be presumptuous. And we aren't doing this for the sake of our (laughs) own amusement. It's not for fame. It's not for money. It's not about being right either. We tried our best to cover all of our bases. So I would love to know what we got right and what we got wrong. Not from other Beatle fans. I mean, from Paul. (laughs) Because he's the only person who can really say. Well, yeah. Chris Heath, that guy who wrote the GQ article, he got a lot of good stuff out of Paul. He did. And I don't know, yeah. I don't know what it was about him. Like if he was just warm, if he was relaxed, if he was or young, he, or if he's just asked the questions. Yeah, that too. Well, yeah. If like we he, build it, Paul will come. If you expect him to reveal the excruciatingly personal details of <laughs> like the Beatles breakup, like you have to <laughs> of, build yeah. a safe place for him to put that information. I would just like to give a push to the people in the media who do have access to Paul. Like we're just podcasts and we're not the biggest podcast on the BBC. So we don't have access to Paul, but people who do and people who will be interviewing him now, like try a little harder. That's what I'm saying. Like really do your research and know all this stuff and Ask good questions. Ask good questions because time is running out to get this right. So we believe John's fear of abandonment or his trauma over being emotionally deserted by his parents do factor into the Paul and John saga. Yeah, how could they not? (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) But I think more than that, more than just a pre-existing issue of John's that he projects onto Paul, I think is John's belief that he and Paul on some level, or perhaps on multiple levels, are meant to be together. And that maybe in 1967, he thought they were on the same page about that. 
but then in 1968, something shattered that idea. And John reacted by consciously turning away from Paul and refocusing on somebody new. And maybe he believed that Yoko was sent to him, like specifically yes. for this reason. Mm -hmm. Like it was fate that he, when he turned his head from Paul, there she was, which she was. She, <laughs> was, she was there ready and waiting and willing yes. Yes. yes and so it makes complete sense to me that he would think this is fate this is why she's yes. here she has she has come to save me i think john is extremely romantic and constantly searching for meaning in his life maybe he tries on a number of different philosophies but i think at the end of the day he earnestly believes in fate, destiny, love, soulmates, all that type of stuff. John's a dreamer, an idealist, and the ultimate romantic. Ultimate, yes. And I do believe that John believes that Yoko is all those things to him. Fate, destiny, soulmate. But I also believe that John believes all these things about Paul, too. Yes. We never have a direct quote from John about this, but we dance around it all the time. Chris Salowitz writes in his book, McCartney, the definitive biography, that in later years, John would admit that Paul had been the first love of his life and Yoko the second. There's also an unsourced account from someone in the Dakota years that John would tell Yoko, I have two soulmates and I'm lucky I met both of mine in this lifetime. And John often parallels Paul and Yoko. In 1980, he said, The person I actually picked as my partner, who I recognized had talent and I could get on with, was Paul. Uh, Twelve or well, however many years later, I met Yoko. I had the same feeling. It was a different field, but I had the same feeling. And he repeated variations of this. All the time. Yeah. yeah. I've only selected to work with for more than one, a, a one night stand, say with an odd thing with Bowie or an odd thing with Elton or anybody that was hanging around. Two people, Paul McCartney and Yoko Ono. Okay? That's true. I brought Paul into the original group, the choir men. He brought George in and George brought Ringo in. I had a say in whether they did join or not, but the only initial move I ever made was bringing Paul McCartney into the group. The second person of that much interest to me as an artist and somebody who I could work with was Yoko Ono. And Yoko has definitely used this comparison as well. She said in 1990, I think that it's like he was married to Paul, and now he was married to me. We've mentioned before, and I'm sure listeners have heard John refer to his partnership with Paul as a marriage. I've compared it to a marriage a million times, and I hope it's understandable for people that aren't married, or any relationship. It was a long relationship. It started many, many years before the American public, or the English public for that matter, knew us. We, Paul and I were together since he was 15, I was 16. In 1980, he went a step further and compared it to a love affair. The early stuff, the hard days, night period, I call it, and the, early period was was the early 
what I'm equating yes. it to is the sexual equivalent of of the beginning of a relationship of people in love. I think both John and Paul struggled for closure over the next decade and beyond in Paul's case. Uh, yeah. But I definitely believe John's method of coping after whatever happened between him and Paul in 68 was to turn to Yoko and commit a thousand percent to that relationship. Yeah. When the Beatles broke up for real in 1970, I think John tried to convince himself that Lennon McCartney meant nothing. Primal therapy, as we discussed in episode three, gave him a new way to categorize it and then totally renounce it. In Lennon Remembers interview, fresh from primal therapy, John says this. I'm not going to sacrifice love, real love, for any fucking whore or any friend or any business. Because in the end, you're alone at night. I, neither of us want to be. And it, you can't fill the bed with groupies. It doesn't work. I, I don't want to be a swinger. You know, because it doesn't, I've, I've, like I said in the song, I've been through it all. And nothing works better than to have somebody you love hold you. Someone you love to hold you. So in 1970, John no longer believes in Beatles. But by the time he and Paul reconcile in 72 and 73, I think John believes again. Hmm. Deep down, I don't know if he ever really stopped believing. I agree. I think at times he doesn't want to believe. Yeah. And I think it's very possible that for the rest of his life, John bears some resentment toward Paul. Absolutely. For them being apart, for, Mm. you know, for how he feels Paul didn't really go all the way in like John did Mm -hmm. or at least that John feels like he was willing to although I definitely believe that he thinks he belongs with Yoko too I think that both of those things are true you know at other times though I think it does nod him the the unresolved part of the Paul relationship and the idea that they still have unfinished business they're still estranged fiancés cosmically speaking (laughs) yes i don't know about paul in the 70s but i think paul in the 90s and beyond has also embraced this idea of soulmates um i i definitely think his comfort level vacillates in regards to using romantic language about him for sure Yeah. yeah for sure because as we said it it actually may be the crux of the issue between them. So if nothing else, you might be nervous about giving people the wrong idea or, you know, just making a hash of it. Yeah. It's important. He doesn't want to mess it up. Yeah. I think Paul's movement on this issue has been much slower than John's. <laughs> um, ultimately, I think he finally got there too. We have one quote from 2005 where paul says we developed organically together and had the same sense of humor and learned things at the same rate found out about vietnam together little things all of these little awarenesses pretty much hit us at the same time over a period of years and you really become 
soulmates when that happens. Which is illuminating in itself, I think, that Paul considers soulmates something that you become over time and through the shared experience. Whereas mm -hmm. John, I think, would absolutely go for the cosmically faded since before birth, take on the whole soulmate concept. Yeah. Yeah, he'd, he'd, he'd go for the most excessively romantic view possible. That is, it is a really good observation though, because you're kind of arguing predetermination, mm -hmm. you know, versus uh, free, free will. Yep. And that is very much them too. I think. It is. Yeah. We'll discuss this in much more detail in the next episode, episode five <laughs> yeah. of our four-part <laughs> series. <laughs> Uh, we didn't mean to postpone it or anything. Uh, we just need a little more time to yeah. get through all of this then. We estimated. That's right. Yeah. Sorry, and you're welcome. Yeah. Well, you you definitely won't be shortchanged. Let's, let's put it that <laughs> way. <It's> true. <laughs> Portion yeah. sizes are large here at ACO. <laughs> they sure are. <laughs> no complaints about portion sizes here at ACO. We got all the fixings. The pizza's... Might not be on time, but they will be oversized. <laughs> <laughs> to bring this all back to the late 70s, I think we can look to John's song now and then for a good, honest window into the Lennon-McCartney situation. Now and Then is a song of regret, loss, and missing someone. I think it's definitely one of the saddest realist songs John ever wrote. Yeah. We have a demo, the same demo given to Paul by Yoko in 1995. Some of the lyrics are still incomplete in John's demo, but, but some of them are very clear. He sings, now and then, if we must start again, then we will know for sure that I love you. That is also a theme John returns to in 1980 with Starting Over. We don't have an exact date of when it was written, but most sources date it as either 78 or 77. So to the best of our knowledge, it is after the smug Paul and Linda dinner of 1977. <laughs> he also sings, Now and Then I Miss You, followed by some missing lyrics here that he uh, kind of hums over. But then he finishes the stanza with a kind of guttural sounding return to me. He definitely sounds sad and conflicted and it would track with the fact that John and Yoko had dinner with Paul and Linda. And John was very upset afterward about Paul and Linda being happy. Whether or not Paul and Linda were being obnoxious, the fact that John is so upset by it that he needs to convince himself Paul doesn't love Linda to comfort <sighs> himself can only mean that John still has feelings for Paul. I'm sorry, but no amount of contortions will make that 
anything other than what it is. Yeah. John isn't over him and hasn't completely let him go. There's another unfinished verse where he sings about letting this person go, knowing he has to let go, even though he doesn't want to. The phrase itself, now and then, may also have significance to John and Paul. Uh, Carl Perkins, in 1981, wrote a very sweet love song to Paul called My Old Friend, inspired by his trip to Montserrat to play with Paul on the tug of war and the friendship between the two of them. And the last line of Carl's song is, my old friend won't you think about me every now and then and i'll think about you my old friend and there's a story about this in john edwards book crossing over which is a compendium of paranormal and supernatural experiences of various celebrities in that book carl says that halfway through the song i see paul is really crying And then he goes on to say that Paul excuses himself, steps outside, and Carl apologizes to Linda for upsetting him. And she says, Carl Perkins, how did you know? Carl says, darling, I don't know what you're talking about. How did I know what? John Lennon had been killed only months before outside his apartment building, the Dakota in New York. Linda explained that, although it wasn't publicly known, Only days before his death, she and Paul had visited John and Yoko at the Dakota. At the end of the visit, as they were saying goodbye, John said to Paul, think of me every now and then, my old friend. So there's another reference to John and Paul meeting in 1980. And uh, it goes on to say that Carl believed that John Lennon had written the song from beyond and given it to him for Paul. This is in 1981. 14 years later, Yoko gave Paul this tape of John's demo with now and then on it. Yeah, I mean, so my observation is that like if John said to Paul, think of me now and then, old friend, like it definitely, <laughs> right? That definitely sounds like an in joke or like a you know, a secret phrase or a funny right? line from something that yeah, they, it's yeah, like it, between them. Yeah. It's just, it's so stilted. I mean, and you know, maybe, maybe John had turned into a 18th century novel character, but. Oh, well, exactly. And also like John, formal. he's not saying farewell to Paul in 1980. Like right. I'm planning to meet up in a couple of weeks. So, it, yeah. you know, so it's not like John uh, is dying. Farewell, right. my old friend. Think of me now. And, 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 and then, yeah. yeah, also John is not Noel Coward. So that's not <laughs> a normal way for people to speak. So my point being that it's possible that this means something to them beyond John saying it this one time in 
1980. Yeah. <laughs> Are you saying that they talk to each other in their songs? I Yes, I definitely am saying that. Oh. I'm going to go out on a limb and say <laughs> what they have said out loud many, many times on the record that they wow. communicate to each other in song. You're so brave. I know. I'm, I'm out there saying what other people want. <laughs> That's why you come to ACOM. That's right. To get the straight mm. shit. <laughs> For whatever it's worth, George Harrison nixed the idea of recording this song in 1995. But Paul has said that he loves the song. Um, he didn't seem at all bothered by George not wanting to do it. <laughs> he did not. <laughs> it didn't seem to worry him. Uh, in this clip from 2012, he sounds perfectly happy to keep it for himself. And there was another one that we started working on, but George went off it. <sighs> fucking hell. Fucking rubbish, this is. It was like, no, George, this is John. This is still fucking rubbish, you know. Oh, okay, then. <laughs> so that one, that one's still lingering around somewhere. I'm going to nick in with Jeff and do it, finish it one of these days. Still fucking rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay, but Paul's like, I don't give a no. fuck. This is between yeah. me and John anyway, this, so. Yeah, he's probably thinking, great. If I record it all by myself, I don't have to stop myself from drawing little hearts around it. <laughs> and if anyone had any remaining doubt how important this song is to Paul, in the most recent New Yorker profile on Paul by David Remnick, he revealed that he still intends to finish now and then. Yay, which I'm so I'm so pleased. I'm so glad that he's doing that. Yeah. And I I assume he said it out loud only because he's gonna release it. Like I I hope so anyway. I would think so. (laughs) That is a total dick move. (laughs) To be like, by the way, (laughs) I finished now and then, but y'all ain't never gonna hear it. (laughs) I just wanted to mention it. (laughs) Ha ha. Right. If George isn't involved with the recording, he can he can go as hard as he wants on making it like soft it ha- and yeah, romantic as true. possible. I hope he does. I hope he does too. You know he would enjoy it. That's what will make him happy. He should do it. Paul, just do what you want to do, babe. It's you're 80 years old. Fuck it. That's that's right. Hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> go ham on that thing. <laughs> That'll be the last one in McCartney song. Oh, BB. I know. Remember the <sighs> others, the other John Lennon song that Paul posthumously co-wrote is Free as a Bird, in yep. which John sang whatever happened to the life that we once knew. And Paul answered in the next line, can we really live without each other? This is good support that these songs Free as a Bird, Now and Then, and other late era Lennon songs are a continuing dialogue with Paul, even if they never saw the light of day until after John's death. And that Paul knows it and that, you know, he's keeping that conversation going, even after John's death. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to ACOM. Thank you for taking this wild and crazy emotional journey with us. <laughs> yes, it is much appreciated. In our next and final episode, 
we'll take a dedicated look at what Paul has communicated about the relationship over the years. As Paul has often said, anything I want to say, I say it through music. He sure did. He sure does. He, he does like to he say sh- that. Here in my music, I show you my heart. So we'll take a close look at Paul's work in the 1970s to get a sense of what he is conveying to John. And as always, we will augment our interpretations with Paul's own words and take a comprehensive look at the events and behaviors surrounding the music. Because in the last episode, we really are going to do our level best to see where Paul is coming from. But again, we're going to we're going to take a look at uh, what Paul was going through when John was alive, how he might have reacted or felt about John's actions toward him and what his hopes and dreams for the future of the relationship might have been. Thank you so much for the good reviews. We really appreciate your feedback. Thank you so much. We appreciate you guys sticking with us. It's history and love. Those are two important things. Absolutely. And art. Yeah. Yeah. That's right, bitch. Yeah. Art, history, and love. (laughs) It's the new sex, drugs, and rock and roll. (laughs) The future of rock and roll. Thank <laughs> you.